And Father, even right now, as we have a gathering together of people who have bowed our knees before our Lord and submitting our lives to Him, we just pray, God, once again, that You would speak to us, that You would grow us in the knowledge of who You are and the magnitude of what You have done. And so, Father, I pray that You would bless us as we experience this feeling of family and And Lord, that you would meet us, Father, in just a very real and special way. So Lord, just pray for this morning's service. God, that you just do a mighty work within our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor. Greetings. I think one of the kids used my mic for uh, the VBS play. They must have big ears or something. (laughs) We did have Vacation Bible School this past week. We ministered to over 120 kids. It was truly a blessing. You wouldn't recognize the place, but it was good as God's people get together. We had the church put back together in less than an hour, and so that's really cool as well. And so... uh, you know, we just move on, move on doing what God has called us to do. And so first step in moving on, we have a baby dedication this morning. And so if Kelly will bring his parents up here, we're going to dedicate him to the Lord. Go ahead. He can come up if he wants. You got to bring the drink. This is David and Vida, and this is Kelly. Will Kelly come to me? Hey, big guy. Oh, you say hi to everybody? You say hi? He goes, who are these weird people? We have baby dedications at our church. It's a wonderful reminder for us all. First of all, how we came to the Lord. We came to the Lord just as this young guy clings to his parents. We're needy, and and God is there, and he he accepts us with open arms. But also our responsibility. It's twofold. We have a responsibility in our work of ministry and supporting the church to raise up children in the way that they should go, but also accountability that you would be reminded to pray for this family and, and raising not only this little guy, but the the other members of the family as well. And as we come together, as we do the work of ministry, we just see the great work that God wants to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them wherever you go, excuse me, when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your, your house and on your gates. And our prayer is, is that God's word would be written on the doorpost of this young guy's heart, that he would worship God, that he would serve the Lord. And well, 
we so look at children as the future of the church, they're not so much the future of the church, they're future leaders within the church. This is the present church. And so we just rejoice in God's goodness and how he has blessed this wonderful family and just pray for years of blessings. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and I lift up Kelly and just pray, God, that he would grow to be a man who is awesome in your hands. I pray, Father, that you would fill him with your spirit and use him in wonderful ways. I pray for his parents, his sister and brother, and pray, Father, for their ministry to him and his to them as well. And just pray, God, that you would just watch over and keep this family. And that, Father, you would be glorified through their actions. And so I lift up Kakeli and just all whom he represents. But him personally, Father, again, he's got unique calling. He's got unique giftings. And I pray, Father, that he would exercise those giftings. And as he does, Lord, it would just be again for your glory. So we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for this family that has decided to share this time with us, that we would be blessed, and in turn, we would be blessings to them as well. So we just thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I think he wants to stay here. <laughs> he, he said goodbye. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye, big guy. Bye bye. You did pretty good, too. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. If there isn't, if you raise your hands, the ushers will bring one to you. Does anybody need a Bible? Just raise your hand. Hebrews chapter 6, I'm going to be picking up at verse 9. Go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. If you keep in mind the background theme that has been going on is maturity and the need to come to maturity. Verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute, Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for the refuge to lay hold the hope set before us. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil." 
where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Once again, Father, we just pray that through your word today that you would prepare us for every good work, that you would grow us, that you would mature us, and that you would prepare us, Father. And so once again, just speak to us and guide us in and through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Now, for those of you who are my age and older, maybe a few younger even, it was some time in 1968 that country singer Lynn Anderson lamented the empty promises of a failing relationship when she sang, Promises, promises, that's all I ever get. All you gave me since the day we met, you'll break my heart in two again, I bet. Promises, promises, that's all I ever get. I was going to sing it, but I decided not to. (laughs) Miss Anderson's problem is is that she had put her faith in man's empty words rather than hope in a living God. What the writer of Hebrews will be expounding upon today is the surety of God's word. Not so much the truthfulness, although that plays a big part, but God's word is sure. The things that he has spoken of, the promises that he has given us, these things he will fulfill in our lives. I've got a great promise we all do in store for us, and that one day we'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord, but there's so many other uh, promises that we have as well that we're able to realize even in this life. Now, it's important to understand that earlier in this chapter, the writer drew a distinction between two types of people, and we see this in the pronouns. First, there was the first-person pronoun of the us And the we, in verse 1, therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Then if you skip over to verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. And so you have this born-again believer, obviously, he's writing out of Rome to the church that is in Jerusalem. And so this is one believer writing to other believers, and so he uses the pronouns us and we. Then there is the third person pronoun of those and them. In verse 4 and 6, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good work of God and the powers of the age to come, verse 6, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. So the those and the them, who are they? Well, they're either those who aren't saved or those who maybe truly are saved but never came to maturity in their Christian lives. And that's a problem. It's a problem between the person who's not saved and the person who is but never really matures. It's hard to tell the difference. It would be hard for that type of person to really give a reason why they are saved. And usually the best that they can do is because they made some kind of outward... um, commitment to Christ that was never really a commitment. It was a walking down the aisle, a raising of the hand, a saying of a prayer, but they never followed through in living a holy Christian life that reflects Jesus Christ. I mean, the day that you were saved, the reason God didn't instantly rapture you is because he wants to use you. 
and we all need to see, you all need to understand and know, myself included, we're to be God's billboard of love. How I once was lost, but now I am found. That I once was destined for destruction, but God saved me. And as God saved me, God desired to use me so that others would look upon me, others would look upon you, and realize the same God that moved in your life is the same God that is able to move in their life. So last week was all about the those and them. Today we're back to the we and us as we look at, at least start off in verses 9 through 12. And what we're going to see are three main earmarks of maturity. Now when I give you these lists, again, they're not all-inclusive, nor are they meant to be all-inclusive, but just time for a born-again believer to sit and to take inventory, to take stock of where you're at in your Christian life, to understand and to know that are these things present in my life? Am I moving forward in my Christian life? Or, well, if you're moving forward, you're doing well. But if you're staying static, you're backsliding. And if you are backsliding, then you need to repent and you need to get right with God. And so this is a short list, a short list that we would do well to heed and not apply it to anybody else's life but our own. And what we're going to see again in verses 9 through 12 is a labor of love, a full assurance of hope, and patient faith. These things that for a maturing born-again believer, they should be present in all of your lives. And so first, a mature Christian will work at a labor of love. Look at verse 10, verses 9 and 10. But beloved, we, he's going back, we as far as us Christians, we are confident of better things concerning you. Now what he had previously been talking about are these people that have, they've just tasted of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There's never any commitment there. But but as for you, we're, 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 we're concerned about you, and we want you to know and understand these things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Well, this is easily illustrated for me today because I experienced it all week long. There was a group of people, a group of servants who came here every night. And they ministered to, as I said, about 120 kids. We averaged about 80 to 90 a night. But it wasn't easy, especially once, you know, kids are a little timid when they first come in. But by Thursday or Friday, they're the mindset they're taking over. <laughs> this is their playground. And, you know, we, we, all these chairs were moved out. If you were here last week, you saw the stage, and we kind of heard them in here, and they're jumping and running and screaming, and, and they're just having a good time. They're doing what kids should be doing and what we desire for them to do. Now they sit and they learn about Jesus as well, but they have fellowship and they enjoy their fellowship. But then there's the adults, those who are, who are troop leaders, who are leading them around. And a lot of people worked all day long and they came here and they put forth the effort. And I was sitting in the back and I was watching and just kind of amazed that, you know, apart from Christ, why in the world would anybody do that? You know, seriously, why would you do You could be home laying on the couch. But it only makes sense but for Christ, but, but for Jesus, and but for being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and, and having a desire to minister in the body of Christ. And even as that, those particular people who are serving are coming to maturity, to see these kids come to maturity as well, as well as their parents. The idea here is, is because God has brought you into his family, you now serve the family that you have been brought into. That our Christian life is to be an active Christian life. Matter of fact, our waiting for the Lord is to be an active wait for the Lord. And so what is being spoken of here is specifically somebody who is serving in their church. And the idea is the elect will exhibit saving faith by their works. And now you're saying, I thought salvation was free. No, salvation was freely given, but it was never free. Christ paid a horrible price, but because Christ paid for that price or paid that price and he freely gave to me, now I, I, I see and understand that I have received that as I come and as I serve him, as I make him the Lord of my life. Remember Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? So if Jesus Christ is truly your Lord, you're gonna follow through in obedience in your life. And just just a natural thing. James was very clear in his epistle. We are not saved by faith plus works, but we are saved by faith that works. Again, that's probably the number one earmark of your Christian faith is that you have a desire and in fact you do serve the Lord to the degree and in the capacity to which you have been called and which you have been gifted. And maybe it's cleaning floors that's okay. Maybe it's in there teaching kids. That's great. Parking cars, slinging donuts, turning knobs, singing songs, whatever it might be, however God has enabled you, come into the Christian life and the fullness of Christian life and exercise those giftings. And you know what? The church, you're going to think, wow, once you enter in and how great it is for you, but it's going to be just as great for the, the people of the body of Christ. And it's as we have every member doing his part, then we have a fully functioning, healthy body. And so there's that labor of love. It's that labor because he has first loved us, and now we love him. So we give back as he has freely given to us. Secondly, a mature Christian will have a full assurance of hope. Verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end all the way to the end, have that assurance of hope. It's kind of a double positive, if you will, there. Hope, trusting in God for the future, and to have that assurance of hope all the way to the end of your life. Trusting God, understanding that the moment I close my eyes here, I'm opening them in the presence of God. That when Jesus said, behold, I go to prepare a place for you, He was in actuality saying, at least I should personalize it, behold, I'm going to prepare a place for for Mike, for you personally, and that that place is there and that place is prepared, that that one day when I do leave this life, I will be in his presence. And may your diligence be in direct proportion to the hope that you have. And the idea is, is the more or the greater trust that I have for the Lord, the greater my hope will be. And the greater my hope is, the more diligent I'm going to be in my Christian life. Again, in verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. Next to that word diligence, you could write devotion or eagerness. It's to have that passion of serving the Lord and entering into the Christian life and growing in our Christian life. 
the idea here is those who are trusting God for their future will be devoted or be passionate about their calling in, his, in our lives today, his calling in our lives today. And then thirdly, a mature Christian will exhibit patient faith. Verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Based upon all that you've been promised by God in actuality, what he is saying is, don't be lazy. Don't be a lazy Christian. We need to be passionate about I mean, if these things that we believe are true, if God has released us from our sins, if God has eternity in store for us, and understand how huge that is. You owed a debt that you couldn't pay, and he paid it for you. What if I came over to your house? This isn't going to happen, but what if I came over to your house on Monday and said, get all your bills here on the table, we're taking care of them today. That would be, you're going to pay off my house? You're my car. Yeah, we're paying everything off. That would be just beyond you. And, and, and the only reason we're doing it, not because we want, we're just because we love you and we're gracious. Well, we had this unpayable debt that we owed God, and God wrote it all off. He wrote it all off through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, we need to be a people who are motivated. We need to be a people who are passionate. And that being the case, I ought not to be lazy in serving, lazy in praying, or lazy in reading. That I ought to be a person who is dedicated to these things. But know this, Christian, in the midst of all these things and how we are to be and maturity and, and, and just the things we've just discussed, promises, promises, that's all you will ever get. The difference between God and Lynn Anderson's boyfriend, though, is, is the trust that we have in God. You're only going to get the promises until you enter into the kingdom of heaven. But then you're going to realize the magnitude of them all. You're going, to realize, you're going to realize God's planning and purpose in everything that happened. You're going to realize that the things that you thought so bad weren't so bad. They were really hard, but God was using them to work together for, for all that he had planned to do. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, in all of this rich chapter in the book of all of these verses that are so well known, I just love verse 18 when Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So looking forward to all of these things, but as for today, it's all about faith because they're all based upon the promises of God. And so whoever wrote that Lynn Anderson song understood the futility of human promises. But we understand the glory of God's promises and the surety of them that as we examine our lives and as we are willing to give ourselves to him as far as exercising a labor of love, because of God's promises, I serve him. And because of God's promises, I have the full assurance of hope that my future is tied up in, in him and, and the power of that which led Christ to the cross but also brought him up from the dead, that just as surely as God raised Christ from the dead, he's going to raise me from the dead. And, and then also I'll exhibit patient faith. Again, hope, trusting in God for tomorrow. Faith, trusting in God for today. Whatever it is that God has set before me, whatever it is that God desires of me, that I would be dedicated to him, giving to him. And so all of this, the trust in the promises of God. 
And so I want to close our study out. We're not getting out early. It's going to be a long closing. But close our study out examining what it means to trust in God and really coming to the conclusion of why we trust in God. And so we need to understand that when it comes to God's word and it comes to what God has told us, trust is essential. Matter of fact, it's so essential that if you ever forget, it's real easy to be reminded, just pull some change out of your pocket. What do we have written on all of our currency? It's still there. In God we trust. In God we trust. But my question would be, do you? And I'm not speaking to just the normal person off the street. I'm speaking to the church. Do you really trust in God? Now, I remember, this was back in, uh, was it the 70s? Maybe the early 80s. It was probably the early 80s. I was uh, in, in construction and there was a lot of people that, it's when the Shah of Iran fell, and there was a lot of people that had money that fled the country and came here. And we were building this hamburger restaurant for this one man who was Iranian, and uh, he was one of the people who fled and all. And um, I was talking about a specific thing that I was doing electrical-wise with him. I usually didn't talk to the owners much. I would talk to the general contractor, but I was talking to him. And I, I told him I'd get it done. He goes, you sure we need to get this done? That's my Iranian accent. You sure we, we need to get this done? And I go, yeah, I'm going to get it done. Just trust me. I'll do it. He goes, you Americans, when you say trust me, that in actuality means, and I won't tell you what he said. But what had happened was he's discovered that Americans weren't very trustworthy, at least the ones that he was dealing with. But we're dealing with God. We're dealing with God. And these promises aren't just from Mike and just what Mike is saying. It's not just what a book and what a book is saying. These promises have been, been delivered to the church throughout the ages that we would cling to these promises regardless of the things that are going on in society or throughout the world. And so as we see things seemingly falling apart throughout the world, we've got this word of God. And really, as we close out today, we'll see that this is an anchor to the soul. In the midst of all these stormy waters and all these things that are going on, we're able to drop anchor. And in the midst of these raging storms, we're able to have hope and we're able to have faith and we're able to have trust in the living God. We just prayed for the young man because he's able to have that just as the oldest of us here are able to have that as well. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. He's not saying to try trust, but to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. When things seem that they're off the charts, when things seem like they're just going to completely fall apart, Don't lean on your understanding. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he's going to direct your paths. He's going to show you the way that you need to go in the midst of all that you experience. So why do we trust in God? First reason that I have, again, an inconclusive list, but a list nonetheless. First of all, what is revealed to us here at Calvary Chapel, Ontario this morning is because of who he is. Verses 13 through 15. For when God, now the writer of Hebrews, he's writing again from Rome to believers in Jerusalem. Now they are born again believers, but who are they going to relate to? They're going to relate to Old Testament concepts. 
us who have read and studied the Old Testament, these are just as rich for us. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So maybe the best picture for us is when you go and sit in a court you're hearing a lot of testimony. First of all, there's the guy who's been accused, and he said, I didn't do it. And then you've got his attorney who says, he didn't do it. And then you have the prosecutor who said, oh, yes, he did do it. And then you have the police who said, well, we looked at the evidence, and we think that he did it. And then you have the witnesses, and some witnesses would say, well, he didn't do it, and the others will say he did do it. And so it's important that throughout all of this, to sift it all out, and to get the truth. And, and so what they did is, and what we've established so long ago, I don't even, not even sure if they do it in courts today, but they tell you to put your hand on the Bible. And the idea is you're swearing before one who's greater than you. So help me God. I'm, I'm here to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Because, well, because a, a society is built upon God but it's also built upon truths that we would seek out that holy God and, and that it would influence our lives in all that we do. And so God and, and who he is, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So we are to trust in the one who cannot lie, the one who is holy truth. And it's essential that I hold the word of God, that you hold the word of God in such regard that this is absolute truth. Because if the Bible is not absolute truth, then everybody is just going to pick and choose what they want to believe. And what happens when everybody does what is right in their own sight? Read the book of Judges, because that's how the book of Judges ends. Everybody does what is right in their own sight, and it was a mess during that time. We live in a postmodern society when basically the, the foundation of postmodernism modernism, and what's called the emerging church, which would be the church of postmodernism, is people get to define their own truths. What is right in the Bible, what's not. And they believe that although those truths may have been true at one point, that since society has changed, God's truths have changed. And isn't that a mess? You don't want God's truth to change because one day you're going to stand before God. And as truth is, by grace you've been saved through faith in him. That which has proclaimed to be sin so long ago is still sin today. And what's the danger and damage that happens when we start redefining sin? Well, Jesus came preaching the, the doctrine of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so if that which was proclaimed long ago to be sin, and now all of a sudden we're saying don't worry about it, then I'm not going to repent of it. And a, a repentance that is conducted apart from ignorance in the word of God, I'm talking willful ignorance, is not really a full repentance. And then, now this is getting theologically incorrect, but I want to make a point. Do you really have full forgiveness? Now, when we repent of our sinful nature, God forgives it all. Don't get me wrong. But I need to see the importance of maintaining the truthfulness of God's word throughout my life and us throughout the course of history. It's not only important, it is essential. 
In, in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So living in a postmodern society where we get to de- define all that we're going to believe in or all that's truth, what happens? We got a mess. Our society cannot define a male and a female. How silly is that? That's not even a strong enough term. It's just ridiculous. It's just absolutely ridiculous. And it's, this is what we, we come to when we set God and we set the truthfulness of God's word aside. Everybody does, does what is right in their own sight. I believe that I'm going to be a woman today. I believe that I'm going to be a man. You know, you just see how ridiculous this has come. Now, as far as the truthfulness of God's word, if God can lie or if God can even be wrong, then our faith fails. This would open the door for us picking and choosing what is true and false. Now, again, a trial, you want the truth to come out in a trial. But what happens when there's lies and deceptions? It gets so clouded. And that's the hard thing in a trial is to discern really what is true and, and, and what is false. And you've heard the stories of somebody who has been convicted of a crime and has spent 20 or 30 years in jail, and then they finally come to the realization of what the truth was and how tragic that is to that life. And so what you really need to see is how truth has... It's just a cornerstone of our Christianity. It's a cornerstone of our mere existence in this world today. In Psalm 119, verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So according to verse 13, God validated his word or his promises upon the truthfulness and integrity of himself. Now, Abraham... He's just coming into a relationship with God. But that promise was recorded so that we would be able to look back at at that event, understanding, coming to the understanding of who God is, and realizing that if God swears something according to his nature, then you can truly grasp on to the truthfulness of it. Now, if I gave you a promise and told you that I give my word upon it, you know, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow, I give you my word on it. You would examine me. Have I been truthful in the past? Am I an honest person? Am I faithful? And it's only as you're able to affirm all of those things that you're going to trust. Now, if I've told you, I'll be there tomorrow, and I've told you that in the past and I didn't show up, your idea is, yeah, we'll see about that. But God has been faithful. He's been faithful in your life, and he's been faithful throughout the course of history so that when God gives a promise based upon his name, based upon who he is, we're able to trust in that. So look at the extent to which Abraham placed his trust in God's word. Look at verse 15. And so after he, the he here is Abraham, and so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. What does it mean to patiently endure when God gives a promise A lot of times, I see this in the Word of God and in my life personally, there's a promise gap. A promise gap, that's the gap between when the promise is given and when the promise is fulfilled. And so for Abraham, it was 25 years. 
25 years he gave the promise of a son. 25 years he waited and he wondered, when is this going to happen? He experienced that promise gap, but God was faithful. Now, what are the promises that God has given you? Some of us, well, in, in all of our lives, we have a pretty big promise gap on the one when, when he's gone to prepare a place for us and he will take us unto himself. That's a big gap that I need to continue to exercise trust and faith and hope in the Lord. Some of it's going to be smaller, but nonetheless, there's always the necessity for that promise gap. And really, the necessity isn't for God, it's for you. That I come to a greater knowledge of God that as I'm enduring, and it is an endurance, especially in our society today, because we all want it instantly, but as I receive the promises of God, that I'm learning to trust in God in the midst of it. As Abraham did so and he prevailed, then he was used as the example. Also note the word for patiently endured is the direct opposite of what we saw previously for those who are dull of hearing. The difference between a mature and immature are those who will patiently endure, continue on with their eyes focused upon the Lord, continually to pull, push forward. The opposite of that is just become dull of him. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've heard it all before. I've experienced that with people in the church. I've experienced that with my three-year-old grandchild. I've experienced it. Well, we've all experienced it. Secondly, why else do we trust in God? Because of what he is doing, look at verse 14, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. It was God's idea to send Abraham to Cana, to make Abraham a blessing, to have him be the father of many. Why? Because God has purposes and plans in all that he does and all that he promises. A good definition of faith is trusting in God without knowing his completed plan. And so we trust in God because we know that he's doing a work. We know that Jesus Christ is coming back. We know that there's going to be a tribulation. We know the evilness of society and how that at some point is going to increase. We know all of these things, and it's in the midst of all of these things that we see the reality that God is moving and God is working. And that should build trust. Even as things get harder, it should still build trust because the Bible tells us that these things are going to be so. And so as God is working out all things for the good, my trust in this is confirmed through obedience. Turn over to where that promise was made in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is a very rich chapter in the scripture just because God sets so much precedence here. He sets so much for our lives and so much in the future. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. Now keep in mind, and again, this chapter is just rich with this, but the rule of first mention in Bible study states that when God first mentions something, and this isn't 100% of the time, but a great percentage of the time, he sets the standard for how this is to be used. We've looked at this in the past. If you look at the first one, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. That's the first mention of love in the Bible. And the, first, the context of the first mention of love in the Bible is the love of a father for his son. 
And so that standard is going to be set that works its way all the way through into the New Testament. But the scriptures I want to look at is Genesis 22, 15 through 18. It says, then the angel of the Lord, this is more than likely a pre-incarnate picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says the angel of the Lord. If you notice, the word angel is capitalized, at least the A in angel. The translators believe that this is, well, they've attached deity by the capital letter. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies and your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. First mention coming up here because you have obeyed my voice and so the first mention of the word obey that carries some weight here because you have to realize how he has obeyed, and he has obeyed in a great many areas. Notice the fulfillment of Abraham's trust. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning after he was told to sacrifice the son, his only son, the son that he loved, his obedience was immediate. He rose up early in the morning to go and to fulfill what God had called him to do. Verse 4, then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. His obedience was consistent. He continued to push forward. If God told you to do something that was just off the charts hard, would you get up first thing in the morning and do it right away? Probably procrastinate. Maybe God will change his mind. And then even after three days, after you had a lot of time to think about it, would you still continue forward in obedience? Verse 5, Abraham's obedience was willing. And Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. Verse 8, he was content in being obedient to God. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. He knew God was going to do a work. Verse 9, his obedience was contagious. And when they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Well, we know that Abraham is pretty old. He's up over a hundred now. His son is probably in actuality somewhere between 20 and 40, probably closer to 20. And if he don't want to be bound in the wood, he ain't going to be bound in the wood. And so what you need to see is his dad's obedience, so is his son. And so his obedience, his obedience is contagious. And then verses 17 and 18 and it's just, it, well, nothing's more important, but what the point is, his obedience was rewarded. Verse 17, because of this blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gates of their enemies. In your seed, in your future generations, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. How did that come to fulfillment? Jesus Christ came through his lineage. All the nations, all the nations, all the nations as far as quantity within the earth, but also throughout all of history have been blessed because of this man's obedience. Now, it didn't come about because of his obedience. God would have found somebody else. But how about you? Are you being obedient what God has called you to do? 
I hated that part when you said about serving, signing up for ministry, and, you know, Christian maturity. I'm a mature Christian, but yeah, I'm not serving right. You've got to be obedient to what God called you to do. It's not always going to be easy. Matter of fact, if it's easy, is it really obedience? I mean, if God tells me, Mike, tomorrow I want you to get up and go play golf. Sorry, Terry. I got, God called me to go up, and it's like, yahoo! That's not really obedience. It's when God says, instead of playing golf, I want you to fill in the blank. I'm not going to fill in the blank because I don't want anybody to use that against me tomorrow and I can't play golf. (laughs) But you get it. It, Obedience, obedience is got to be hard or it's not really obedience. In Revelation 21, 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he will be his, uh, sorry, he will be my son. And what is God's purpose for his people who place their trust in him? I just got another little list here. I'm going to go through it pretty quickly. First of all, God's purpose and those who place their trust in him is to proclaim our true God. That's what Abraham is doing through his obedience. That's what you do through your obedience. It's what this family has done today through their obedience. We proclaim our true God. Because, I mean, to come up here, what does it mean to dedicate your child to the Lord if, in fact, God's not there or you don't believe that he moves in our lives? does absolutely nothing. But we come to full understanding of who God is and what he's called us to do. We're obedient. Secondly, that we would be seen as his people. Thirdly, that the faithfulness of God would be seen through us. Fourthly, that the blessings of God would be displayed by us. And fifthly, that the grace of God would be a part of us. So to proclaim our true God, to be seen as his people, that the faithfulness of God would be seen through us, that the blessings of God would be displayed by us, and that the grace of God would be a part of us. And then, going back, go ahead and turn back to Hebrews. We see the permanence of his promises. Verses 16 through 18. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. Thus God determined to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong constellation who have fled for the refuge to lay hope of the hope set before us. That's one of these sections of scripture that I get a lot of questions. What are the two promises? Because usually when it states something like two promises, then you look after that and where's the promises? But the promises were really given in the preceding verses. The promises, or I'm sorry, well yeah, the two promises, number one was the promise that he gave, but also the pledge that he gave as well. His promise is salvation for those who will believe. It's the ultimate trust in Abraham, just believing in God. That's all that Abraham in actuality did. Because he believed, he acted forth. But first there had to be that belief. And he was rewarded for that belief. But then there is the pledge, the security of the spirit, that which he was sealed by the promises of God. In 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us as God, who has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So he made the promise, but he also gave the pledge. The pledge that he gave would be the Holy Spirit. The promise that he gave is salvation for all of those who believe. Now, again, keep in mind that this is all building a trust within us that we're willing to go, well, willing to give all 
for the God who gave all to us. And then we'll close with this last one. We trust in God because the son that he sent to close the deal. Verse 19, this hope we have, all that was written that proceeded uh, from verse 13, really from verse 9 and on, the hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the present behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll get into the Melchizedek finally next week. But the idea was entering behind the veil, coming into the presence of the Father, you had no assurance apart from Jesus Christ because you were a sinner and you were well aware of your sinful nature and you knew that God was well aware of your sinful nature. But now we have this great hope. It's an anchor to my soul that when I enter into the presence of the Father, I'm sure and I'm steadfast based upon Christ. That verse that verse spoke volumes to the church throughout the church age. Let me read you this. The anchor became a key Christian symbol during the period of Roman persecution. The first century symbol wasn't the cross, the fish, or the dove. It was the anchor. If I'm a first century Christian and I'm hiding in the catacombs and three of my best friends have just been thrown to the lions or burnt at the stake or crucified and set ablaze as torches at one of Emperor Nero's garden parties, the symbol that most encourages me in my faith is the anchor. When I see it, I'm reminded that Jesus is my anchor. Epithets on believers' tombs dated back as far as the end of the first century frequently displayed anchors alongside of messages of hope, such as peace be with you, speak of the hope that Christians felt in their anticipation of heaven. Archaeologists found about 70 examples of these kinds of messages in one cemetery alone. That anchor of hope that we have is that God is faithful, trustworthy, and he doesn't change. You understand that as you are maturing in your Christian life, you'll hold those things dear, and they'll have a great impact upon your life. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done, especially this week, Father. Just with Vacation Bible School, I lift up the kids that received you as your Lord and Savior, the kids, Lord, that that grew in the knowledge of you. I thank you for the servants and how you have blessed them. But I just pray, Father, that we would see this is how church is supposed to be, the giving of our efforts, Father, for your glory. And so, Lord, as you have enabled us, you've blessed us with this building and the finances to be able to do something like that. I pray, Father, that we would be of the mindset of giving our all for the one who gave all for us. And so, Lord, as we move forward, I pray that as we grow in our Christian faith, there's so many areas, but how much more so the knowledge that our Lord Jesus Christ is the anchor to our soul, because our soul can so drift, it can so go out in the high seas and become perplexed. But I pray, Father, that we would be rooted and grounded in the knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that this church would stay rooted and grounded in your truth. And, Father, I pray we as a people that we would truly learn to trust in your truth. So we just thank you and praise you, Father, for all of your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? A couple of things.